coming up a week from this weekend. It's the picnic on Saturday from 11.30 to 3.30, and then uh, a week from this coming Sunday night on October the 19th, Michael Mikofsky will be here. So uh, make sure that you have uh, planned all of those things, and especially, especially uh, the picnic. We're going to have, as usual, a lot of fun and play volleyball. And what's that game that? Pickleball. 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 If you don't know how to play pickleball, it's well, it's, it's, it's like badminton with a wiffle ball. Isn't that what it is? Yeah, it's kind of like tennis with the ball. Yeah, it's badminton with a wiffle ball. So anybody can play it. It doesn't matter how young you are or how old you think you are. You can still play play pickleball. Okay, I think that's it. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure you're in fellowship. Scripture teaches that we must be walking by the Spirit, enjoying our fellowship with God in order for our spiritual production to have any eternal value. So we always give people the opportunity to make sure that they're ready to go uh, spiritually for each class, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's a wonderful privilege we have to come together in freedom to study your word. It's wonderful privilege we have to live in this nation with all the freedoms that we have, the security that we have, the prosperity that we have, and the tremendous heritage that we have in your word. And Father, we live in dark times now because there are so many who turn, who not only are turning their back on that heritage, but they are assaulting it as much as they can. And Father, it is, uh, uh, it is only when we turn to you that we can have a solution. Uh, we may have fix some symptoms here or there. Voting may help in small ways, but ultimately the only thing that will reverse this decline and restore some uh, measure of unity and focus to this country is for a response to your word. And so, Father, we pray that as believers we might be faithful in uh, and being sensitive to situations to communicate the gospel to those around us and to encourage other believers, and to be a light in the midst of a dark and perverse generation. Father, as we study your word tonight, it helps us to understand the end game, and there are so many things that go on around us related to prophecy and so many people who have ideas that are not quite right. Uh, often they are close, but they, there's such a, so many popular myths, you might say, within evangelicalism that that people are not really sure, so we need to focus on your word and what it says and encourage us that even though things may look bad, you are still in control and there is hope and there is certainty because you are the God who controls and rules over history. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're continuing our study tonight in dispensations. I want to answer or address 
two or three questions that came in last uh, last week uh, after class and the next day. One of the questions that came in uh, was, uh, I thought, a very good question. I made it. I've made it a point that I, one of the reasons I don't believe that the Antichrist is, uh, aside from some biblical reasons, that I don't believe the Antichrist is a Muslim, is because I don't see a Muslim Antichrist giving uh, or allowing Israel to build a temple on the Temple Mount. Question though that came in was how are how do I expect or how do I explain the fact that in the end times in the Antichrist rule how are the Muslims going to submit to his rule and there's an assumption in that question that is that the Muslims will we live in a world today we have to be very careful about doing what I call newspaper exegesis and that is looking at at the circumstances of the world around us today and thinking that in the tribulation period that it's going to be similar to that. And I've given this a lot of thought since since uh, 9-11 and the wake-up call that everybody got to the rise of uh, Islamofascism or Islamic terrorism or whatever you want to call it, uh, Islamicists. But I, I... and this is just my opinion. I can't back this up with Scripture. Scripture doesn't address it in the, that framework. But it is my opinion, and I've discussed this with other scholars who are very knowledgeable about prophecy, that when it comes, when we come into the biblical scenario of what the what it looks like in the tribulation period, in terms of the the devotion to the Antichrist that it doesn't appear that Islam in its current state where it is increasing in power, uh, committing acts of terrorism all over the world and uh, fomenting rebellions all over the world is going to be in that place of the power that it has now because of other scenarios. It looks as if something is going to happen between now and the early stage of the tribulation that destroys this militancy in Islam. What that is, I don't know. Uh, We have the same kind of questions when we talk about the location of the temple on the Temple Mount that is currently occupied by the Dome of the Rock and how how is Israel going to be able to rebuild a temple on the Temple Mount in light of the Palestinians, in light of the whole Israeli-Arab conflict. How's that going to work out? Many people have addressed this. Many things have been postulated about how this is going to resolve. Nobody knows. Uh, Some people have suggested even that there's going to be a war and uh, the Arabs will shoot a missile or somebody will shoot a missile and it will destroy the Dome of the Rock. Who knows? It could be anything. So we can't really speculate on that. We can just look at the Scripture and we have to ground what we do on the Scripture. Now that leads me to the second email that came in, and this is a question in relation to what I was teaching on Second Thessalonians 2.3, and the person who sent this in, let me see if I can read this, is he's t- trying to argue, well, look, one, th- one of the things I wanted to do, I did not set this up, let me do this real quick. I wanted to set up uh, Laga so that we had a text to look at up on the screen. So let me do this. Very quickly, and we're going to come on. 
There you go. We're going to move this over here. And then I can do this over here. Okay. One of the things that we see in Second Thess chapter 2 is the statement in verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means for that day. Now, that's all in italics. And it, what it says in the, in the text is, for that won't come, or that, uh, the, for the falling away comes first. The, the whole phrase, that day will not come, is put there in italics because otherwise it wouldn't really make sense in English. But that's the implication uh, of the Greek. And you have to look at the term, and you have this word falling away. Apostasy is used. You have to do word studies. Exegesis rules, not theology. And the question that came in reads something like this. Uh, and his, his argument is that, that this isn't the rapture, and he was asking a question about that. And he, well, without reading the whole thing because it's a little choppy and not real clear, is that what he's doing is he's arguing, and people do this all the time. I've been guilty of this. Others have been guilty of this, is that you take a theological proposition or something you want to defend, and then you read that into the text. We can't, not, we can't do that. We have to always start with what the text says, and that means doing good grammar studies and doing good word studies. And that means that this word apostasia, which is in places translated in the sense of, of falling away, or departure, which is the core lexical meaning, is departure. And it's used that way in Koine Greek, and it's used that way in, uh, in, a, in a noun form or in a verb form in one place in the New Testament. And it has to do with, with leaving somewhere and going somewhere. Now, it's applied to doctrine as departing the truth. It's applied to other things, for example, ships in departing a dock. But it is it, here, if you translate it with its core lexical meaning of departure, what this is teaching is that the, the departure comes first prior to the man of sin being revealed. Now, the person who emailed this in wants to defend that doctrine. He also wants to defend against the pre-wrath rapture uh, view. But it's not necessary to go along with what has been a traditional translation. You always have to work from the Greek text and not from the English text. And you always have to let the text control your theology and not the other way around. And so you can't come in just because you believe in certain things or you see that if we interpret it that way, then that could create a, a, a weakness in our defense against pre-wrath rapture or something else. Uh, you go with what the text says, and you don't try to interpret the text in light of uh, other problems that may come along. The text has to reign, reign supreme. And then a third question that came up, uh, which uh, I can un understand this, that there are a lot of people who are, who are doom and gloomers, who, uh, and she points out specifically that there's some that she knows. I'm, I'm not aware of this view. I was aware last year when we had the Mayan calendar view. I've been aware of other things, but she said that she's hearing people suggest that 2000, 
uh, 15 is the year of destiny for end times prophecy. And that just may be a reference to the, the whole blood moon thing. And guess what's happening tonight? We're having a blood moon eclipse tonight. So if it's supposed to be cloudy here, so we probably won't see it. But yeah, the, the go back and listen. I did a whole special on the blood moon, uh, on, on this blood moon teaching that just doesn't fit the evidence. It's another case where people try to make look at Scripture. First of all, they misinterpret the text because they don't look at all of the other things that have to happen at the same time that the moon turns looks like it turns to blood. That's that's just a descriptive way of saying that because of of some sort of a- astronomical phenomena, whether it has to do with atmospherics on the Earth or something else, it appears from the earth as if the the moon turns red. Well, the sun is also darkened at the same time, and there are other things that happen at the same time in each of these references. It's not just something that happens to the moon. The other thing is, in the four years in which, previous years in which this tetrad or this situation of four uh, blood moons has occurred, it hasn't always occurred in a predictive position. Uh, they'll say, well, it occurred in 1951, and that was because something significant happened in Israel in 1948. Well, if I see the highway sign to turn off to Houston a quarter mile after the exit, it doesn't do me any good. A sign necessarily comes before an event. And we also have a tendency to look at signs and then go find something that'll fit. And I will bet you anything that people will say this Gaza war this summer is what this, uh, these, these four uh, blood moons would signify. And that's just making stuff up. That's what I call newspaper exegesis. We're going to look at current events and then try to get them to fit a biblical scenario. And it just doesn't work. So go back and listen, listen to uh, the, the lesson that I taught on the, on the blood moons. Okay, we're continuing our study in the tribulation period. We've gone, worked our way through all of the different dispensations, and now we're in the tribulation period. And one of the questions that often comes up in discussions is, is the tribulation a distinct dispensation? And if we go back to our basic, basic definition of a dispensation, as an admin, as a distinct and identifiable administration of God of human history, it is distinct. It has specific markers as to when it begins and when it ends. It, one of the characteristics of the dispensations is new revelation. And I'm not sure how we would put that in terms of new revelation. I've got, I'm still thinking that through, but there are certainly different, distinct markers. For example, the church age is distinctive because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit occurred for the first time in history on the day of Pentecost. When the church, that's what makes believers in this age, saints in this age, the elect of this age. That was another question that came in, and I'll, but it had to do with something I taught on Thursday night, so I'll cover that on Thursday night. The church age elect, what makes them distinct from believers everywhere, uh, all of the periods in history, is our identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's a unique ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, that sets apart the church-age believer. When the church goes to be with the Lord at the rapture, 
then the church is removed, the church is no longer on the earth, and that ministry of God the Holy Spirit, the baptism by the Holy Spirit, along with the filling by means of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, will no longer be taking place. And so believers at that time will will be similar to believers in the Old Testament in terms of their relationship or lack of relationship to the Holy Spirit. But in, unlike Old Testament saints, they won't be looking forward to a salvation. They will be looking back to a finished salvation on the cross. So it's clearly a distinct period, and, I, and it goes back to the age of Israel, but it's a distinct dispensation. I would say that from my perspective, as I have argued that the period of the life of Christ clearly fits a pattern for dispensation, has all those characteristics, that the tribulation would too, and they're short. I think that bothers some people that, it, that a dispensation would be so short, but it is the dispensation of the judgment of God. That's what the tribulation is. It is the dispensation of God's judgment on the kings of the earth, on the rulers of the earth, on the earth dwellers. That's a phrase that shows up again and again and again throughout Revelation, from Revelation 4 to Revelation 19. It is God's judgment upon the earth dwellers and upon Satan and the angels that rebelled with him. And that all comes to its final conclusion in the campaign of Armageddon. So... With that as an overview, we're looking at key people now in the tribulation. We're still talking about the Antichrist. Just to review, there's three basic series of judgments. If you can just say seal, trumpet, bowl, you've got the tribulation. You just have to fill in the details. But those are your basic coat hangers are those three uh, series of judgments, seal judgments, trumpet judgments, and bowl judgments. The seal judgments and the trumpet judgments, as we see in this slide, occur before the midpoint of the tribulation. The, the, so the uh, seal judgments would occur during the first 21 months, approximately, of the tribulation. The trumpet judgments would occur during the second uh, 21 months. Remember, it's four and a, I mean, three and a half years, so it's a period of 42 months. And then that is going to be followed by the seven bold judgments that occur in the last three-and-a-half-year period. The defining marker in the tribulation period is that event called the abomination of desolation that's mentioned by Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, and it's also restated or quoted by the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 24. Now, the last point that I looked at last time was the sixth point. I was going through a lot of things related to this sixth point, the rise of the Antichrist and putting together this ten-nation confederacy. I know that there's some different views. One view that I'm, I have become aware of but have never really investigated it is, is a view that, that the Antichrist rises to power and he basically divides the world into ten spheres of power. That's the view that Tim LaHaye takes in his uh, various uh, commentaries and writings on prophecy, his uh, Left Behind series. Some of you have already seen the uh, new version of the Left Behind series. You may not be aware of this, but the uh, version that came out a few years ago was an unauthorized version, and there were a lot of problems. People went out and made the movie, and they didn't have the contractual rights or many other things. It did not have LaHaye's approval. I, uh, the new one is out. It has LaHaye's approval. 
it still has one of the major flaws that the earlier one did, and that is it doesn't make the gospel clear. Uh, so you don't really understand why these people are raptured and what's going on. So it's rather uh, they make it rather rather nebulous. They make it more of a of an adventure or suspense film rather than a gospel presentation. So this sixth point was just focusing on the rise of the Antichrist power. In every generation, there are antichrists, as I pointed out from First John chapter four, or First John chapter two rather, to eighteen and two twenty two. And we see evidence of this even today. We see a world that is being prepared more and more to reject biblical Christianity. And there are people in power. There are elites in the academic world. There are elites in the political world. There are elites more and more in the business world that are opposed to biblical Christianity. And I know of Christians who have lost their jobs because they were willing to take a stand and not say that they approved of a policy that uh, w- that that would get basically give their validation and approval for same-sex marriage. This is coming. This Supreme Court ruling yesterday, where they failed to make a decision. Uh, they said they wouldn't wouldn't view it because a number of the appellate uh, courts have already ruled in fa- that the uh, that the states that had anti uh, anti-gay marriage, they had defensive marriage uh, legislation. The, these um, appellate courts had already ruled that those defensive marriage-type laws were unconstitutional. Uh, at least three appellate courts have ruled on that, so the Supreme Court basically uh, just took a buy on the whole issue, in which basically says that the states that wanted to contend this don't have a case. The appellate courts ruled against them, so they're the Defense of Marriage Acts, their laws that prohibited uh, homosexual marriage are, are no longer valid. And that's going to be coming to a state very close to us soon. We weren't one of those states in that lawsuit, but our uh, the Texas uh, Defense of Marriage Act and legislation against same-sex marriage has been um, has been struck down by by a court. So this is going to be a reality for everybody now. In this country, it's going to, by default, be part of the law of the land. Now, that's going to have some interesting implications. One of the things that the board has to take up is is some decisions about how we're going to handle this officially as a church. We have legal legal uh, statements within our doctrinal statement that we believe what that the Bible prohibits this and that we do not authorize the pastor of this church or any representative of this church to perform same-sex marriages. But that might have been valid and effective language 10 years ago, but I don't think it is today. Now, an interesting proposal, I think a good proposal, that has come out is one that Charlie floated uh, in his paper at the uh, Chafer Conference this last year, and that is that churches need to get out of out of the state's business. When a person gets married... I mean, I know this doesn't have anything to do with specifically with the Antichrist, but this is where we're headed. This kind of thing is what's happening, is that um, in a separation of church and state, when you have a wedding at a church, and, and I've said this ever since I was ordained, the only thing that makes you married is when I sign that marriage license and mail it in. When the county clerk records it, that's when you're married. You're not married when you stand up in the front of the church and say, I do. You're married when the county clerk 
records the wedding in their in their book. It is a state function. It is a civic function. The church has worked together with the state on this for uh, the entire 200-plus years of this nation and back into the colonial period, but we need to get a divorce. We need to separate from the, from the state, and if people want to get married legally, then that's their business, and they can go down to the courthouse, and they can purchase a, a marriage license, and they can uh, go to the justice of the peace and get that uh, handed, a civil marriage conducted. But if they want to have a Christian marriage, then they can come to the church, and we can have a Christian marriage, a biblical Christian marriage and wedding, but it's not going to involve a, a marriage license anymore. That's, that's the state's business. So you draw a complete distinction. That way, if anybody wants to come to have the pastor of the church perform a, a, a wedding, then you can simply say, well, we don't perform uh, weddings in terms of what the state recognizes as legal. We just perform uh, biblical Christian weddings, and we don't get involved in signing any documents that the state puts out. And maybe that is a way to protect us protect churches from any kind of lawsuits because the militant homosexuals are targeting churches. Now, they're probably not going to pay attention to a small church like us, but they would pay attention to First Baptist, Second Baptist, uh, many of these other larger larger congregations because that's where they get the publicity and that's where they get the action. But this is the kind of thing that's happening. Now, one of the things I ran across this when I was looking through uh, material on, on the Antichrist is what prepares people for this is the education system. And the education system that parents are sending their kids through in terms of public education is dominated by the, the thinking of hu- secular humanists and has been ever since uh, one of the founders and signers of the first humanist manifesto, uh, John Dewey. And John Dewey made the comment, He's really the architect of the modern public education philosophy. If you're not aware of that, that's what shapes modern philosophy. He said, I cannot understand how any realization of the democratic ideal as a vital moral and spiritual ideal in human affairs is possible without surrender of the conception of the basic human division to which Christianity is committed. In other words, he says we can't achieve the true ideal of democracy unless we get rid of those Christians because Christianity is divisive. That's that last statement, that basic human division. Christianity divides everybody into two groups, those who are going to heaven and those who are going to hell, and that's divisive. So this is from the primary architect of the modern education system. And there are many Christians who teach within the education system and who work around all of the, you know, they never teach evolution, they teach capitalism, they do all kinds of good things, but this is a problem. We have an entrenched liberalism now and an entrenched progressivism that is brainwashing our children. This is one reason why about 90% of kids that grow up in Christian homes and go to Christian churches and go to Sunday school every week, according to studies done by uh, uh, Ken Ham and the Answers in Genesis people and others, that about 90% of them within six months of going off to university have rejected their parents' political positions, unless they were liberal secularists, and have rejected, their, uh, have rejected everything they were taught in Sunday school. 
because they, they just get indoctrinated. So we have to, Christians and Christian parents need to think differently about how they are going to educate their children. Now, I'm not saying that if you're a Christian, you're committed, that you can't send your kids to public school. You may be in a circumstance, in a situation where that's the only option you have. And there are many people who are like that. But that means that it's just incumbent upon you as a parent to work even harder to counter that every day. You have to spend hours reading their textbooks, reading their assignments, teaching them, countering all of the human viewpoint garbage they get, because this is how the, the end times is going to ultimately present itself. Okay, we're talking about the Antichrist. We're talking about his rise to power and how he takes power. It's described several places in the um, Scripture. In Daniel 7:24, says, As for the ten horns, that would be ten powers, ten, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise. So you have the, the ten horns. Horn represents power in the symbolism used in Scripture. Uh, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise. So first of all, you have the rise of this ten-nation confederacy. As indicated in the feet and the toes of the image that Daniel saw, that the feet were of iron and clay. That's iron was from the old Roman Empire, clay from the new, uh, from new elements that are mingled together. And you have ten toes representing ten nations. Here again, you have ten horns, uh, not ten toes, but ten horns here representing ten nations. Ten kings arise, and then there's another one that comes up after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three of them. So apparently seven of the ten are willing to give allegiance to this upstart, who's later called a little horn, and but the other three aren't, so he will subdue them violently. So this is part of that first seal judgment in Revelation where there's one who comes riding on a white horse going forth to conquering and to conquer. And what characterizes him in verse 25, he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. So he is making war against tribulation believers. They're called saints here. You have Old Testament saints, the church-age saints, and you have tribulation saints. These are the tribulation saints. He'll wear down the saints of the highest one and will intend to make alterations in times, times, and a half time. So what do we learn about the beast or the little horn in Daniel 7? First of all, as I just pointed out, he rises to power from within the fourth empire in an empire made up of ten nations. So that fourth empire, if we work our way through Daniel 7, we see that that fourth empire was the Roman Empire. He comes up from within that empire, and so there is a resurrection of that empire. It has some of the same elements as before and some different elements. He uh, Second point, he arises. When he arises, the ten kings are already in place. Verse 28 says that there is some unique quality about him. I believe that that unique quality is that he is either Satan-empowered at this point and doesn't become Satan-possessed, not just demon-possessed, but indwelt by Satan at the midpoint of the tribulation, which is most likely after he is receives a fatal head wound and then he comes back to life. I believe that's when he becomes personally indwelt by, the, by Satan, but he is empowered and guided and directed by Satan I think that's the unique quality. Fourth, he's arrogant and challenges the Most High with 
great and boastful words. He is antagonistic to God, and he is uh, he assaults him. He has no sense of the God of his heritage, of that culture out of which he comes. And if that's the revived Roman Empire, that would be a basically a European, whether it's Western or Eastern, a European culture that was transformed completely by Christianity. If it hadn't been for Christianity, Western civilization would still be as pagan and as barbaric as, as any other culture. If it hadn't been for the Bible's impact on Europe, it never would have impacted India. It wouldn't have impacted Africa. It wouldn't have impacted the Japanese or the Chinese. And all of these cultures in the world would still be mired in the darkness of their paganism. It is the Bible that changed civilization, and it's the Bible that produced civilization. And up until about 120 years ago, it was the center of Western civilization. It didn't matter if you were Catholic or Protestant. It didn't matter if you were Calvinist or Arminian. It didn't matter if you were a liberal Christian or a conservative Christian. What unified your thinking was the Bible. And that gave a center to Western civilization. What's happened in the last 120 years due to the influence of secularism is the center, the glue that held Western civilization together and all the parts of our culture has been uh, decimated. It's been removed. It's been incinerated. There's nothing left of it. And so the result is that Western civilization is coming apart at the seams. And this explains why we see what we see around us, is that there's no unifying factor at the core of Western civilization. And so all we're going to see is a continuous slide into more and more paganism because there's no alternative unless there's a return to the word of God. We see from Daniel 7 that the Antichrist persecutes tribulation saints. He is going to be hostile to them, make war against them. From uh, Revelation 13, 7 and 8, as we compare that, he, we're told that he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. I don't think this comes into effect until that midpoint with, at, after the abomination of desolation. I think he's consolidating his power through the first three and a half years, but this is a time when the, the population of the earth is decimated. A quarter of the earth's population is destroyed in the seal judgments, and a third of what's left is destroyed in the trumpet judgments. That's half the earth's population. Right now they're, they're predicting maybe 10 billion people on the planet by, by 2030. Right now we have about 7 billion, so that would be 3.5 billion people dying. If the rapture occurred today and the uh, tribulation began sometime in the next year, then that would mean in the next four years or so, uh, half the Earth's population would be destroyed. That is nothing like that has ever happened. And that is exactly what what Jesus said. That's what uh, is said in Daniel chapter 12, that no war, no war, no catastrophe like this has ever happened before in human history. So he is going to bring order out of that chaos and reorganize the, the world and establish a truly global government. Seventh, in Revelation 13, 16 to 18, 
through the, through the influence of the false prophet we'll talk about later, he will force everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark. What we're talking about here, just the sixth point, of dealing with his rise to power. So he has economic control. We'll talk about the details of this verse later. He has economic control over all commerce worldwide. And that extends down to the neighborhood grocery store, buying gas if there's electricity to run gas pumps, whatever. Everything is going to come under his control. And he has this control for three and only three and a half years. And it's going to implode on him. And that is the last part of the bold judgments. He will, ninth point, he precipitates a war so ferocious that if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. So at the end there, when we come to the campaign of Armageddon, as the Antichrist is headed to Jerusalem and, and you have this worldwide a conflagration, it is the return of Jesus that brings it to an end. Otherwise, everyone uh, would be killed. When it talks about changing the laws, he seeks to change the Jewish ceremonial calendar. That's part of the focal point there in a Jewish context of Daniel, Daniel 7. And that's what he does when he stops. Remember in Daniel 9, about verse 27, he is going to stop the evening offerings, the sacrifices and the offerings. That's his changing of the law. This isn't like the French uh, Revolution where he's trying to create 10-day weeks. Uh, he's going to change, try to change the, um, he's going to change the Jewish ceremonial calendar and rewrite the sacrifices and offerings. Now, another major passage that deals with the Antichrist is in Daniel chapter 11. There we read, then the king will do as he pleases. That's why he's called the willful king. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god. He identifies himself as God and wants to be worshipped as God when he uh, comes into the temple. That's that abomination of desolation. He desecrates the temple, and he goes into the Holy of Holies in the tribulation temple and demands that everybody on the earth worship him as God. He will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. That's the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished. What that means is the indignation refers to the time of Jacob's wrath until it comes to those final, that final scenario in terms of the campaign of Armageddon. It will look as if he is going to win. It's going to look as if he's unstoppable. Verse 37 says he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. And I believe that what that's talking about is he comes out of Western civilization. He rejects the Christian, complete Christian tradition, the God of his fathers. I don't think that's referring to the fact that he would be Jewish, and so he's rejecting the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's one interpretation. But when we look at Revelation 13, The Antichrist comes out of the sea, which is usually a depiction of the Gentile nations and the land being where the false prophet comes from is a depiction of Israel. So the false prophet is more than likely Jewish, but the Antichrist is is Gentile. Then it says, nor will he show regard for any other God. Obviously, he sets himself up as the only God. 
Oh, I skipped the phrase. Important phrase, for the desire of women. And that doesn't, uh, that's a phrase, the word that's translated desire is used one other time, and it relates to the Messiah. So the desire of women, within a Jewish culture, the woman desired to be that woman that would be the mother of the Messiah. And so the desire of women is the Messiah, is to bring the Messiah into the world. And so he has no uh, no des- no regard for the desire of women. That's just a a phrase referring to, that refers to the Messiah. Now the other major passage that deals with the Antichrist is in Second Thessalonians two nine, uh, two nine and ten. That he is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. So it fits Satan's pattern right there. He's not saying that he's indwelt by Satan, but that he is empowered by Satan. It's it's. It's an extreme form of satanic influence. And he is accompanied with all power and signs and false wonders. That doesn't mean that he's just, he's just performing a magic trick. That he's a master illusionist. That's not what that means by a false wonder. It's not saying that somebody comes in, uh, claims to have cancer, claims to be paralyzed, and he, he heals them, but it's just a, a, a fake. It's that he has power to heal, but it doesn't come from God. Go back to Deuteronomy 13. When when uh, Moses is t- warning the Israelites about false prophets, he says, if a prophet comes along and performs a sign or a wonder and then tells you to follow after another God, just because the sign or wonder came true doesn't legitimize his message, doesn't validate what he says if what he says contradicts Scripture. And the emphasis is on what is taught, not what a person experiences. And 2 Thessalonians 2.10 says, With all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And that is just another way of talking about trusting in Christ. Notice in... um, the, the, these are just circumlocutions, other ways to talk about it. In, in Daniel 11:37, he doesn't have re- the Antichrist will not have regard for the desire of women. Who's the desire of women? It's Christ. In Second Thess 2:10, says the love of the truth. Who is the way, the truth, and the life? I am the way. I am the truth. That's Jesus. There's no love for Jesus there. This isn't talking about a love for doctrine. This is because there is no love for doctrine if you don't, first of all, have a love for Christ. So this is just another way of talking about the fact that they didn't receive the gospel. Okay, Daniel 11.39 states, And he will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. That's a reference to Satan. With the help of a foreign god, he will give great honor to those who acknowledge him, and he will cause them to rule over the many. That would be Israel. This is describing what happens in the second half of the tribulation and the oppression of the Jews in the land, and he will parcel out land for a price. So he's dividing up up the world. Okay, that's his rise to power. Seventh point under the Antichrist, remember the last point had to do with his rise to power and consolidating the power of the ten nations. He's an eleventh king. The seventh is that the Antichrist establishes a mark which signifies religious allegiance to him. Folks, this isn't getting a, um, a, a chip put under your skin that, that is going to be scanned for like a credit card. 
This, that is not what this is describing. This isn't something that you can just, just inadvertently get. This isn't going to be like, oh, I got a, uh, like so many college kids today, they're given an application for a credit card. They fill out the application, they get a credit card, next thing you know, they're $5,000 in debt. Oh, I really didn't understand what was going on. And they probably didn't because they've never had an opportunity to spend money like that. So this is not talking about that. The mark is significant. It is something that is visible. It's a mark that's on the forehead and on the hand. It is a sign of protection and allegiance to the Antichrist so that so that if the Antichrist stormtroopers come along, they can look at you and tell whether or not you have sworn allegiance to the Antichrist or not, whether you are... Uh, a patriot to his government, government, or you're a traitor serving God. So what we read in verse 16, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. This is a, a Greek word that's only used, uh, I think this is the only time it's used in the New Testament, karagma, and it could indicate a tattoo, it, everybody wants to jump on that, oh, because tattoos have gotten so popular in the last 30 years. But they may, you know, those are just various fads. They may become very unpopular before long. You never know. Uh, but it's something like that. It also means an inscription or something. The root meaning is something that is cut. And that doesn't mean that it's cut into the skin. It would be some, it could almost be like a branding uh, although maybe not painful like a branding would be, but it's a, an obvious external identification mark indicating both protection and ownership. It is the, Satan's counterfeit for the sealing of the Holy Spirit, except it's going to have to be visible in order to be seen and uh, as and, and utilized to buy and sell, to go to the grocery store, to get gasoline, to pay your utility bills, to own a house. Uh, without the mark, you can't engage in commerce. There's going to be one heck of a black market going on during the tribulation, I'm sure. Later on in Revelation 14, 9 and 11, we read regarding uh, this mark, uh, another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand. The receiving of the mark on the forehead or hand is connected to worship. It's a religious rite. There is, it, would be in, it would involve swearing allegiance, renouncing God, renouncing Christianity, and swearing allegiance to the Antichrist. Now, nobody's going to lose salvation but I think that in the tribulation period is so strange compared to what the environment is now. It's going to be obvious to one and all that to take the mark is going to be a violation of what it means to be a Christian, that you're going to align yourself with the enemy of God. I don't think that any Christian is going to take it, however that works out. it's not God's not going to violate anybody's volition, but there's, there's very clear statements that no one who receives the the, the mark of the beast is going to have eternal life. Verse 11, the smoke of the torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. So it's a, that's a clear statement. So I don't think Christians are, it's going to be, the issues are going to be so very, very clear 
in the tribulation period. Remember, this is a time when you have these angels, like the one mentioned in verse 9, that fly through the air and announce the gospel to human beings. The angels are visible and audible, and they will be heard giving the gospel to humanity. So this is, you can't compare the environment today with the environment then any more than you can compare the environment today with the environment before the flood. It's a different kind of situation. Eighth point, at the midpoint of the tribulation, uh, the Antichrist will erect his statue in the Holy of Holies of the Tribulation Temple. This is the abomination of desolation. Ninth point, he's usually pictured in the Bible as a warrior. He is militant. He pursues peace and he wages war. He forces ten nations to submit to his authority. And he operates on deceitful tactics. He's empowered in a way by, by Satan that God has not allowed anyone else in history to be influenced or empowered by Satan. Uh, that's the tenth point. He's personally indwelt by Satan. And then the eleventh point, in the first three and a half years, that represents his rise to power. He persecutes Christians and other opponents in a reign of terror that goes beyond any persecution, pogrom, or holocaust ever before experienced in human history. We think now about the horrors of what Hitler and the Nazis did in World War II, but that will pale in comparison. Actually, it pales in comparison to what Stalin did in Russia. Stalin killed, in World War II, they don't know the exact numbers, but approximately 28 million Russians were killed in World War II. Before World War II started, Stalin probably killed between 28 and 50 million people in Russia. It's amazing. when I've, I haven't been there in three or four years now, but I've, I've gone to the World War II Museum in Kiev several times. And it's, it's fascinating. It's a dramatic presentation of World War II. And when you come to the end, and they had taken this down the last time I was there, but when you come to the end, there was this huge sign, chart on the wall that listed every country that participated in World War II, what the Russians called the Great Patriotic War, and started with the Soviet Union, the USSR, 28 million people. And then it went to the next country and the next country in descending order. And over on the second column about a third of the way from the bottom, you have the United States, and it's something like 388,000 killed. Where do you think World War II, it strikes you. World War II was not fought in Western Europe. It wasn't fought by the Allies in Western Europe. It was fought between Germany and Russia on the plains of Poland, the plains of Ukraine, and the, the plains of southern, southern Russia. Kursk and where these other great battles taught. That's where most of the people were killed. Probably 70% of the people who were killed in World War II were killed in Eastern Europe and in Russia. That's phenomenal. It gives you a whole new perspective than the one that we usually get here. So, But as harsh as that was, that's nothing compared to what's going to happen during the tribulation period. In the second three and a half years, his worldwide coalition begins to fragment. An army from the east will invade in concert with one from the south, 
which culminates in the campaign of Armageddon, a series of battles. It's not just one battle. We often think the battle of Armageddon, and the press never gets it right. They think Armageddon has become a metaphor for any disaster or any huge battle or the end of days or whatever it is, but they they miss the whole point that this is a battle between the Antichrist and Jesus Christ, and he is coming to rescue the remnant of Israel before the Antichrist can completely destroy them. His destiny will be to be sent to the lake of fire along with the false prophet at the end. I mean, they're sent directly to the lake of fire. Somebody always asks, well, are they, if they're in their mortal body, they would just, just be, uh, just burned up, incinerated instantly. Well, obviously they get a, they get, they're transitioned into another form of body on the way so that they can handle the pain and the torments. I mean, that just is a logical deduction from the text. Otherwise, they would just be incinerated. And then there's always that question, uh, Jewish or Gentiles, I said earlier in Revelation 13.1, he comes out of the sea. The sea usually represents the chaos of the Gentile nation, so he's, he's Gentile. Now we come to the second. Anybody have a question, Bryce? Yeah, we four. four of them. I would probably want to handle what? Offline. Offline, okay. You make the decision. Okay, here's one from Tony in Nebraska. When you say you think the Antichrist will be a Gentile, what exactly do you mean? It would seem that he would have to have some Jewish blood in order to deceive the Jews. And given the meaning of the prefix anti, meaning in place of, it would seem more likely that this is so as I read the scripture, especially using Judas a a type and a fact that Jacob was said to be a Syrian. Well, you're mixing up a couple of things there, but yet other people have raised that. That's not not a new thought. However... He comes out. You got to go back to that exegesis of Roman of uh, Daniel chapter nine, uh, the prince of the people who is to come. Who were the people who came and destroyed the first the first temple? They weren't Jews. They were Gentiles. They were Romans. He is their he's their prince. Uh, the prince of the people who is to come. The prince who is to come it comes out of that that background. Uh, you know, you, it, when you get into this whole issue of who, who will the Jews recognize as a Messiah and who will not, uh, when they're so apostatized, if they reject Jesus, they will re- accept anybody as Messiah. Without getting too political, there's a few presidents that have had messianic complexes and been even identified by their opponents as having a messianic complex. And Many Jews have voted for them. I mean, you, 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 and I'm not making a comment about all Jews. I have many wonderful friends who are Jews and many conservatives, but the liberal Jewish establishment on the East Coast here will, will buy into anybody who supports their Marxist Leninist objectives, and they'll vote for them. And they have absolutely no ties to the religious traditions of, of, of Israel. Most Jews are that way. It always surprises people when we go to Israel and they listen to one of the guides. And I know our guide, he's a secular Jew. He may be agnostic, but he is not a Christian. But he knows what Christians believe and what Christians uh, want to hear. And he is, and not that he's violating his own views, 
but he te- he teaches what uh, he doesn't tell us things. He doesn't put his agenda out there. I've been on trips where I've had guides who are constantly trying to put their theological bias out there uh, w- with a bunch of Christians, and it's really obnoxious. And we have a guide who does, and I've been with other guides who don't do that. They they understand the beliefs of Christians, and they don't go stomping all over their toes. But most Jews do not believe in, in the Bible at all. They don't believe in any any of that. So there's nothing that would prevent them from affirming a non-Jewish Messiah. That's it. Okay. Now, a few moments remaining. I just want to fly through this a little more, not as extensive as, um, as with the Antichrist. The false prophet is a distinct person from the Antichrist, as indicated in Revelation 13, 11 to 18. And I think this partially answers the previous question, and that is that he is Jewish, and he is going to tell them that the, that the Antichrist, who is the master deceiver, all those passages that we looked at, he is the master deceiver. The, the false prophet is going to point them to the, to the Antichrist and say, yes, indeed, he is the Messiah. And I don't know if they're going to come up with some sort of fiction or what else, but they're going to document him as as a substitute Messiah. He's called another beast, and he's the prophet, the spokesman for the Antichrist. What we learn about him in looking for in Revelation 13, 11 to 8, is that he is a Jew. He arises from the earth. That is the land. The word there is geis in the Greek which indicates all, always the land, not just the world system, but he comes from the land. He's religiously influential. He's motivated by Satan. He has de- a delegated authority from Satan, from the Antichrist, and he promotes the worship of the first beast. So he's the one who is going to promote that, that worship. He performs signs and miracles, just, like, just as much as the first beast does. And he deceives the unbelieving world. So they are empowered with, their, with all the power that they have. They deceive unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles to worship the first beast. He promotes his idolatrous worship. He has the power of death over people who do not worship the beast. He has great economic power. No one can buy or sell unless they purchase the mark of the beast or unless they swear allegiance to the mark of the beast, and he establishes that. That all comes in, Most of that comes into effect in the second half of the tribulation uh, period. His fourth point, I've got that reworked wrong. At the midpoint of the tribulation, he sends up the Antichrist statue. He'll set up the Antichrist statue in the Holy of Holies, to be worshipped as God. He's the one who empowers that. Uh, that By his statue, I mean the Antichrist statue. Fifth point, he's usually pictured... Oh, wait a minute. These are... got Slides got out of order, so let me... Okay. Those slides got put in there by mistake. Okay. That's all on the Antichrist, just the list uh, on the false prophet, just those lists of his various various powers. Then we come to the 144,000. These are not, I've heard this allegedly from the Jewish community. There are certain myths that kind of float through the Jewish community about why Christians support Israel. 
And one of them is that the reason Christians support Israel is to get all the Jews back in the land so that they'll be killed when Jesus comes back. And now you laugh and I laugh. I've never heard a Christian teach that. I've never heard of any Christian theologian ever express that idea. I've only heard this rumor in, uh, in, in the Jewish community. And another part of that rumor is that only uh, Christians believe that only 144,000 Jews will be saved during the tribulation period. And that's not true. The Bible teaches that there are 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of, of, of Israel, who will be saved at the beginning of the tribulation period, and they go forth as evangelists to Jews and Gentiles during the tribulation period. Uh, and there will be uh, millions and millions, hundreds of millions, I think, of unbelieving Gentiles that believe in Jesus as Messiah. And I, will th- I think there are going to be tens of thousands of Jews that will trust in Jesus as their Messiah during the tribulation period. As a result of this ministry, this begins at their, their, their they begin their ministry at the front part of the tribulation period, and eventually they become martyrs, as I point out in a second. So these 144,000 are Jews from every tribe of the sons of Israel, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. Those are literal numbers. And they're going to be sealed, but that seal doesn't protect them all the way through the tribulation period. Uh, the second point is they're called bond servants of our God in Revelation 7-3, and they're the believers who become the evangelistic core for the tribulation period. Uh, they're sealed, which suggests they cannot be harmed, but eventually they're all martyred. And we know that from Revelation 14:1 and 3, because they're at the this is at the end of the tribulation period. John looks and sees the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. This is when uh, the Lord has returned in the midst of the campaign of Armageddon. He's now come into Jerusalem. He's on Mount Zion. And with him are the 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the living, four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except 144,000 who were, who were redeemed from the earth. So they are probably martyred near the end, just like the two uh, witnesses will be martyred uh, d- during the uh, midpoint of the tribulation. Okay, I'm going to stop there. We'll come back and go through the last part. Actually, I didn't have a slide on them. The two witnesses which are mentioned in Revelation chapter 11 are variously identified as Elijah and Moses or Moses and Enoch or Enoch and Elijah. There's no biblical support for any of that. There's nothing that indicates it's one of those. They come in a ministry like that. Just as John the Baptist had a ministry like Elijah's, he's not being resurrected. So they're going to have that kind of a ministry, and they will fulfill Zechariah chapter 4, verses 11 through 14. Okay, next time I'm going to come back and give us a flyover of the tribulation period itself, and then uh, we'll be done with the tribulation. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to reflect upon them. And, Father, we just uh, uh, recognize that no matter how bad things get in our lives, it's not nearly as bad as it will be in the tribulation period. And even then, you're still in control. You provide comfort and strength and the power to uh, 
survive, the power to uh, go forward uh, in whatever tr- difficulty we may be in, whatever adversity we may face. We know that we can handle all things through Christ who strengthens us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.